We all know that electronic communication is fraught with difficulties. Reverend Edna Lanfiesta was the first woman to be ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church in Guatemala. And celebrating Eucharist with her at St. John the Baptist in Guatemala City is, for me, one of the highlights of our medical mission trips to Guatemala. After one such wonderful experience a couple of years ago, I posted a status on Facebook, had a great time celebrating Eucharist with Reverend Edna tonight. But I must have typed a wrong letter, because autocorrect changed it to, had a great time celebrating euthanasia with Reverend Edna tonight. a little awkward. But besides autocorrect, electronic communication carries the risk of impulsive communication. When a conversation takes weeks to play out over the postal service, we're more likely to think through the consequences of what we write, and so arguments escalate more slowly, if at all. And of course, when you communicate by email, you can't hear the tone of someone's voice. You don't know whether they laugh or not after a comment, whether they're offended or whether a bit more explanation is needed. And all that can lead to misunderstandings. Misunderstandings may happen more readily with electronic communication than with written letters and texts, since electronic communication tends to be less formal. But the problem is not altogether absent when it comes to written texts. And I want us to take today's gospel reading as an example. The apostles ask or demand Jesus to increase their faith. I've typically understood his response as a reprimand. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But what if reprimand is not the primary tone? What if this response was intended to be plaintive? If you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What if his words are meant to be comforting or encouraging? If you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would do it. It just takes a little faith for miracles to happen. So how do we read the tone of Jesus' words? And then comes the next paragraph, the story of the worthless slaves. Here the gap between the writer and today's readers is larger than just some possible ambiguity in the tone. It's a huge cultural chasm. Slavery is downright offensive to most of us, as is calling someone worthless or saying that someone shouldn't be thanked for what they've done. So I just want to acknowledge up front that we come to today's gospel reading with some preconceived notions about the first part of the reading and moral outrage about the second. So how do we bridge the distance between us and this 2,000-year-old text? Can we see faith in miracles as in any way connected to slaves doing what they're expected to do day in and day out? And where's the good news? It helps to start by looking at the context of today's reading. In Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples that if they had the faith of a mustard seed, they could say to a mountain, move from here to there, and the mountain would do it. Nothing would be impossible for you, Jesus tells them. And he says this in response to their question about why they aren't able to cast a demon out of a boy. Luke tells the same story of the disciples not being able to cast out the demon, but that's not where he puts Jesus' comments about faith. Instead, in Luke, the disciples come to Jesus asking him to increase their faith, 
and they do this right after Jesus has described what a life of discipleship looks like. It's better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause someone else to stumble. If another disciple sins, rebuke them, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. And it's at that point precisely that the disciples cry out, Lord, increase our faith. We often talk about the role of faith when it comes to miracles, like a mulberry tree uprooting and planting itself in the ocean, or a mountain moving simply by command, or a miraculous cure, or some other dramatic, nature-defying act. But what about the faith that takes to live a Christian life day in and day out? How much faith does it take to do the things that are expected of us? Bernie Siegel was a professor of general and pediatric surgery at my medical school. He's very involved in exploring the mind-body connection, and he wrote the popular 1986 book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. Something he said to our medical school class one day has stuck with me all these years. He was talking about delivering difficult news to patients, especially as it relates to a poor prognosis. He said, Always remember that it takes as much hope to live one day as it does to live ten years. I think the same is true of faith as well. It takes just as much faith to be a Christian in the ordinariness of life as it does to perform some magnificent miracle. It takes just as much faith to live a life of trustful obedience as it does to walk on water. It will take just as much faith to open the doors of the Morgan House in hospitality day in and day out as it has taken to do this incredible renovation of the last few months. It takes just as much faith to find peace in the midst of a serious illness as it does to experience a miraculous cure. When my brother-in-law was dying of brain cancer, he received a letter from a woman who had been cured of her brain tumor, which was a very different kind from his. She suggested that if Steve just had faith, he too would be cured. By this time, the cancer was affecting his ability to choose words and to control his hand, but with Dave's help, Steve crafted a reply, and here are some parts of that response. Thank you for your kind letter. I draw strength often from your words of encouragement and from the thought that you and so many others are praying for me every day. I am also grateful to God for the marvelous way he has worked in your life, and I share your faith in the almighty power of God to heal and sustain us. There may be times, though, when God's greatest miracle is not the miracle of physical healing, but the miracle of giving us strength in the face of suffering. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 that he prayed that God would remove a thorn in the flesh, but God answered simply, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I sincerely hope that if my cancer continues to grow, no one will see it as a failure of my faith in God, but that perhaps people can see me as faithful even if I die while I am still young. I do not claim to understand God's will, but I do know that I am in God's hands, whether in life or in death. Sometimes it is our day-to-day -day lives, 
our day-to-day struggles that reveal the strength of faith much more than wildly successful ventures or miraculous accomplishments. Given the popularity of today's prosperity gospel, we often lose sight of this truth. The prosperity gospel tells us that God wants to bestow upon us wealth, success, health, and smooth sailing as a sign of God's favor towards us. But the gospel tells a different story. If we have two coats, we should give one away. If someone wrongs us over and over and they repent, we should forgive them. If we have lots of possessions, we should share them. If someone is in prison, we should visit them. The gospel holds out to us things that we ought or should do without ever expecting to receive what our culture defines as wealth or success in return, just as the slaves in today's parable have done only what they ought to have done. This daily walk in the Christian life not only requires faith, it is faith, pure and simple. Too often we equate faith with belief, but they are not the same thing. Lauren Winter teaches at Duke Divinity School. Her book, Still, Notes on a Mid-Faith Crisis, was released last year, and it chronicles her own period of doubt and spiritual despair. She has a great definition of faith that she takes from historian Christopher Grasso as he describes the religious culture of America in the late 18th century. Faith meant more than intellectual assent to a set of doctrines. It was a commitment of the whole self, a hope and trust that, if genuine, ought to be the foundation of an entire way of life and vision of the world. Winner goes on to write, This description makes sense to me, or more accurately, it makes sense of me. On any given morning, I may not be able to list for you the facts I know about God, but I can tell you what I wish to commit myself to what I want for the foundation of my life, how I want to see. When I stand with the faithful at Holy Comforter and declare that we believe in one God, I am saying, let this be my scaffolding. Let this be the place I work, struggle, play, rest. I commit myself to this. And I think that this is where we find incredibly good news. Good news for the disciples who worried that they might not have what it takes and good news for us who worry about the same thing 2,000 years later. If faith is what undergirds our whole life, our friendships, our work, how we enjoy nature, how we speak to people we pass on the street, how we respond to the needs right in front of us, then we don't have to aspire to great feats like telling a mulberry tree to get up and be planted in the sea. Because if all the things we do in our day-to-day lives are just as much acts of faith, then in God's hands, they too can become great miracles. Miracles of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of peace, of joy, of hope, and of love.